With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I've seen you perform a lot, and I've always thought each one was hilarious. I've never seen you bomb. The very first time, I thought you were all crowd work, and it was all hilarious. Now I know there's a lot more structure in it, that you have the spine and the crowd works around it. Right. Think of it as you're painting a picture, and you have a palette of different colors, right? But those palettes, type of joke, double entendre, lists, misdirection. But it's also tone is another set of colors. Characters is another set of colors. Crowd work is another set. So there's people who understand comedy on a technical level and there's people who are just funny individuals. You have to be so equipped with all these micro skills and know which micro skills you got to go to at the moment when it and has to happen instantaneously. So how do you learn that? Got Dante Nero here. Dante's one of my favorite comedians. Dante, how's it going? I'm good. I want you to stay one of my friends instead. <laughs> you were at my birthday party. Absolutely. You're one of my favorite comedians. I'm going to tell you something that you don't know, actually, okay. about you. Okay. So Bill and I, Bill's in the audience here. By the way, we have a new podcast studio. We have an audience. If somebody wants to like come and sit in the audience, let me know and whatever. But Bill's sitting in the audience. Bill and I wrote a script uh, for a pilot TV show, which we haven't really showed around yet. And you are actually a character. We even oh, nice. named the character Dante. Thank you. And we take dialogue from your actual act <laughs> and put it in the script. It's hilarious. I'll show you at some point or cool. the script disappears. But cool. welcome to the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, man. You've been a comedian for 17 or 18 years. But going on 18. 17, going on 18. One of the first times we met, you gave me advice. Um, this was like six months ago or so or more than that you gave me advice because i was about to go up on stage and i was feeling a little nervous and you said don't forget even if you've just been doing this for two years or a year or however long right you know a thousand times more than everyone else in that audience Absolutely. they don't have a right to tell you what's good stand-up comedy or not you know what's good stand-up comedy compared to the audience Absolutely. and that gave me a lot of confidence and i really have felt a lot of confidence since then every time I go on stage. I'm glad, man. I'm glad I could do that. I mean, that's what, kind of what I do in general is give advice. <laughs> I mean, it just, I mean, I think uh, knowledge is a burden. And when you have that burden, it's, it, when it comes from a righteous place, you have to get it off. It's a weight that you carry. And you, well, I mean, you should know that because you're, you know, with the Bitcoin and all the finances and all your life, you, you, you learn things and you need to, Give it to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you do, I haven't even given your intro enough credit yet. Like, you you have a great podcast, the the Beige Phillips Show. Yeah. Why do you call it the Beige Phillips Show? Well, it's called the Beige Phillips Show. It's called, now I've changed the name because it's it's kind of so obscure, but it's called Beige Phillips Presents Man School, hosted by Dante Nero. So, um, I used to do a, a, pod, a radio show with Patrice O'Neill, the great Patrice O'Neill. Unbelievable comedian, Patrice, Patrice O'Neill. Probably one of the most prolific comics ever. 
And, and his big, his his last special before he passed away, the elephant in the room. Elephant in the room, amazing one. Some of the most amazing stuff. And uh, him and I, uh, we did a show. We did a show on Sirius Radio called the Black Phillip Show, which like was the, the ghetto Doctor Phil. So instead of Doctor Phil, it was Black Phillip. That's where it came from. And then when he passed away, I picked up the 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 thing, and I was like, okay, um, I'm gonna call it Beige Phillip because I'm lighter than he is. And it was just kind of an homage to him after he passed away. So, um, why are you lighter than his? Why is your mom white? Or <laughs> not, well, my mom is my mom is uh uh she's she, she comes from Virginia, the mountains, um, and they're like descendants of slaves, and uh, she's uh, Monacan Indian, which is a is a tribe of Sioux, and so she, my mom is very very fair. And what was your dad? My dad was from Antigua. Uh, well, his my grandfather's from Antigua, and my mom, my grandmother is actually Irish and black. She was an orphan uh, in Boston, grew up in an orphanage, so she was very fair as well. Like she was passable white, and we're talking about eighteen, eighteen seventies. And my dad was born nineteen twenty. Like I was. Wow, your dad last. was born in nineteen twenty. How many brothers? Do you have a lot of brothers? I got uh, three older sisters, so I got a sister that's uh, sixty eight. Is my older sister, 67, and I have a sister that's a little older than me by two years. So, and you know, um, t tell me some of the things that you've been on. You've done like a million things, so I'll let you so do I've your done credits. Movie fighting, I did Blacklist, I did, I'm in uh, the new Oceans 8 movie, uh, with Anne Hathaway. And are you kidding? I didn't know that. I got a small part in that. I was actually in John Wick, but I got edited out, so you just see me in the first part. Um, I've done uh, Power on Stars Network, Blacklist on NBC. Um, you know, what did uh, you have the most fun at? Fringe. Uh, um, Blacklist was fun because I got to I got a chance to do lines with James Spader, which was awesome because uh, I'm always always was a fan of his and uh, just so as a comic, um, I didn't really ever consider myself an actor. Until I started doing lines with James Spade, I was like, I guess I'm an actor. What's so. what do you think is? And I want to get to the beginnings of your career as a comedian and 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 your approach to comedy because I find it to be very fascinating. Right. As I mentioned, you're one of my favorites for a very Thank specific you, reason. Appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. And uh, uh, but what what do you see as the difference between acting and comedy? Um, comedy, it's all you. It's you. And the audience, and it's instantaneously the gratification from what artistically you put out is is right then. You spit it out, and you get it back. Um, acting, you you make certain uh, artistic uh, decisions, and then you leave it to the editors enough, and and you know you'll do 12, 20, 20 takes, and then they kind of decide which version of what you did is is you know viable so right. you don't have the same control i always i always ask a lot of um actors who have turned into comedians or i read interviews of of sorry comedians who have turned into actors mm -hmm. where where you know what did you enjoy the most movies television comedy everybody and and um, and this is not just people i've talked to about interviews mm -hmm. i've listened to like jerry seinfeld russell brand i spoke to paul reiser mm -hmm. everybody always says Comedy, stand-up comedy, because right. that takes you. And you look at Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow's done a hundred movies that have been a billion, two billion dollars of box office. He still just wants to get up and tell jokes to twelve people. He's yeah. a stand-up at yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think is that that visceral 
and, and I'll tell you, the reason why I'm asking this, I've been doing this for a couple of years, but maybe obsessively mm-hmm. a little over a year now, three to six times a week, which mm-hmm. is for me obsessive. And uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be addicted to it for life. <laughs> you will. You probably will. I, I, you, there's never, because just when you think you got it, you don't have it. Something smashes you in the head and you, you go, oh, I guess I don't have it. And there's always different levels to what you're doing. So um, I, I forget the book I read, but there was a book about, another book about learning and that there's different stages of learning in that. So uh, initially when you see, like if you go to open mics, there are people who are incompetent and uh, unconscious and incompetent. So they suck and they don't know that they suck, right? Right. Then there's uh, conscious incompetence. They suck and they know that they suck. They're aware of it. Then there becomes a point where they're competent and con- uh, competent and unconscious, where they're things is kind of like the zone, like you're in the zone and you're doing everything right, but you don't really realize it because you're so in the moment. Then there becomes the, the, the point where you're competent and conscious, like you know what you're doing and, you, and you're aware of it, right? So the growth only happens in the two center categories, which would be competent and unconscious and uh, uncom- uh, unconscious and, and competent. So I want to I wanna kind of break those all down, but I, I'll repeat something you just said in the, in the beginning, which is that just when you think you have it, you don't. Like there was yeah. a period, there was a period of about two months where I felt like I, I had a good set of jokes. I felt like I was speaking my truth. I was doing great crowd work, right. great on stage. And I was just kind of doing either well or killing in every single mm. set. And I, right. I even remember walking home one day thinking, you know, I'm doing something wrong because I shouldn't be killing every set at this right. point. I should I, I should be bombing at some point, so right. I'm, I'm probably not taking enough risks. Right. And then I started bombing after that. Right, <laughs> right. So, well, you, 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 the, the growth happens in those two. So the two N, which is, when you you suck and you don't know you suck, there's no growth in that because there's no right. there's no current location, and if you don't know the current location, you can't get to the destination. You need both. And when you're competent, and when you're when you're competent and conscious, you know what you do well and you do it, which keeps you, which makes you complacent where you're not pushing artistically, you're not pushing yourself to the next level. So those are the two stagnant points. It's when you 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 suck and you know you suck that forces you to push and take risks because you need to be better and when you're uncomp when you're unconscious and competent because things start to fall into place almost like muscle memory and as soon as i get comfortable then i tend to start pushing myself you know that that's the time to take right. risks otherwise you you spend the you spend that time in those areas where you're competent and conscious you you don't there's no growth in that. I, I see that so much you know as a as a you know I see a lot of sets out here in stand up New York we're, right. we're, we're a podcasting in stand up New York I own part of the club right um so I see a ton of sets I see so many comedians who have been doing it for so many years and they've done all the TV late night appearances but they just do do 
I've been watching them now for over a year. They do the same jokes yeah. every time because that's what they know is their level. It's and they kind of just cap themselves there. That's what will get them on Colbert or, or Conan or right, whatever. Right, right. And I just never see them change. They'll never get their hour on Netflix. And even if they even if they're even if they're changing jokes, a lot of times what they're doing is they're doing stuff in the same context. So what happens is um, as much as we as comics manipulate the comics into laughter, the audience manipulates us into a rhythm. So it's, mm. it's, it's Pavlovian. So and, you, and by the way, this is not just for comedy. This yeah, is for sales. I mean, this is for business. Yeah, this is yeah. for relationships. This is for negotiation. That's why comedy is almost like this visceral uh, initial atom of all these other things that we do in life. Well, I you know I say this all I, something I say all over time that reminds me of the connections of. Of of different mindsets and different uh, skill sets, that true wisdom is the understanding of underlying concepts, how they relate to situations that seem irrelevant but really are not. Meaning, once you have mastered a particular skill, if you boil it down to the root of what those lessons are in that skill, you can reapply though that that those rules in everything in your life. Absolutely, like I've noticed this. I've noticed this actually on CNBC, mm -hmm. the, the business network. Yeah. So I was on a panel with two anchors and three people, and suddenly I realized what it felt like the comedy muscle clicking yeah. in. Now, I wasn't telling any jokes, but yeah. I felt myself taking over the panel, including yeah. the anchors, like just dominating the discussion because yeah. you learn with crowd work and audience work how nobody in the audience is going to have higher status than you at that moment. Right. Has nothing to do with humor either. It yeah. has to do completely with understanding who is in front of you. And control is a bad word. It's more of a conversation. Well, but you're is, I, think, I don't think control is a bad word. I think manipulation and control, I have a, they have these negative connotations, but it's, it is manipulation. And what gives you the ability to manipulate is the being present, listening. Uh, I think more of it than not, we don't listen to... Uh, things we don't shut up and just pay attention to what's going on around us because all of those things, everything that we're listening is information that we're taking in. And if we take it in, like you know, my, my podcast is about relationships, and moreover than not, we're going to talk a lot about that in a little right. bit. But moreover than not, people are not listening, not genuinely listening. It's funny you talk about acting. What makes act make what makes an actor authentic is that okay, I have the lines. But I'm listening to what you're saying so I can respond to it in a real way. So you can connect that to comedy. You see a guy who does uh, uh, he does crowd work. So there's people that do crowd work at people. Like they'll have a set thing that they're going to say. They know that they manipulate the person and they get them to respond. But the real crowd work is what my crowd work is. I'm listening to you, and I'm and I trust that I'm funny enough that the opening will happen. You know that eventually, if I'm in the backfield and I got the ball, eventually the, the defenders will open up, and when they open up, that's when I go. But I have to trust myself and trust my ability mm. enough to know that it my time is going to come. If I don't believe that. Then I'm hasty, and then I just kind of right. So let, let me let me see if this puts you into a moment of of fear or anxiety. Let's say, uh, and again, by the way, I 
I, we, we talk about comedy, but this applies so much to sales, to business, to yeah. management, to success in, in anything, like just breaking down, understanding these components of communication and learning and so on. But let's say you are in front of an audience, you know you have 10 minutes, say, right. and there's only 20 people in the audience, 30, 40, 50, whatever. You, there is still, what if the audience in that short amount of time doesn't give you anything? Do you have confidence that they always will? They if you, will. Mm -hmm. They always will. You're talking about, um, so say you have eight people, right? Say the, the youngest person, let's say the oldest person in that audience is 20 years old, 25 years old, right? You got eight people, right? You literally have, um, you have 200 years of experience in that room. Yeah. So nobody's in 200 years, nobody has anything to say. Really? I mean, it's almost an impossibility. So so it, it's interesting. Like the one time I saw you, um, there was a, a woman responding to a lot of your mm -hmm. jokes. Uh, and suddenly you were like, you turned to her and you were like, shut up. I'm not giving a <laughs> TED talk here. Like audience interaction time is over. Right, right. And so like she gave you something because she was responding out of her own experiences. And you can make that, you can take, you know, you can make, what is, what is a... Uh, Mad Dog says you make uh, chicken shit and make chicken salad. You know, you can you can do that. It it, it all it's always something. They're always going to give you something because human beings don't have the ability not to. You know, they're that's, that's interesting. So you okay? So let's take the other extreme. Then, what if you're only focused on crowd work? It sort of feels like you, yeah, because it feels like you have a. And I've talked about this with other comedians. You have to sort of, and this is like sales as well. You're not just going out there and saying in, in a sales meeting, what problem you have, I'll solve it and charge you. Right. You have like a spine, like I'm offering this service, let's work around that to see what you need. It's and even how. better, it's like jazz. Okay. So there's a framework of a song, but in the framework of that song, you can go in so many different creative situations, but you still stay in, stay in the framework of that 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 song that's playing and 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 then it gives you're keeping your persona sure. you're keeping your basic beliefs sure, there's a structure there's a framework you know and i would say you mentioned listening also in the context of learning and getting to the next level but i would add also to that freedom so yeah. that you know or not freedom honesty so that you know you have the honesty to realize okay i suck at this but i'm good at this right. which is hard for a lot of people to realize sure, sure. and then an honesty to realize okay i might be funny. I, I might have something interesting to say about this that no one else has said before, but everyone can relate to. So there's certain, like, honestly, saying what's on your mind and knowing what's on your mind and sure. being comfortable saying it. Right, right. I, well, I, you know, this is something that I'm come into because a lot of, a lot of younger guys and and well, women listen to my show, but they want they listen to my show to learn how guys think. But there's a lot of young guys who don't really have. Um, they don't have a model. They don't have a role model. There's not a masculine role model. And so I become their masculine role model. Why do you think so, a lot of guys don't have role models? Um, I think there's a... I, I don't, I don't want to say... Because I consider myself a feminist in that I think that women should get equal pay and be able to do the things that they want and they should be able to choose about their bodies. But I think any one of these movements, any movement becomes... Um, it becomes hyperbolic in a sense that it goes far it's too far at times which is part i think part of finding that center the pendulum swings back and forth and then it kind of centers and so what's happening now is there's a lot of situations where you have the because women have been under this toxic masculinity and 
been disenfranchised, then they're but they be, they've become the tyrants as at, they've become the people that have that have um, disenfranchised them. So now you have like the thing that then went went down with Aziz Ansari. You know where he just went out on a date and he's an awkward dude, and then she goes, "Well, I." Then she become that becomes the Me Too thing because right. she had a horrible, she had a horrible date with him, but she blew him twice, and so how is this like that negates the the Harvey Weinstein that that, that toxic masculinity where somebody is actually taking advantage of you. You just want to jump on that bandwagon. You you can't. You have to be. You know. So so what we're talking about is credibility and righteousness, right? So so just on the Aziz thing, it's interesting because regardless of where someone stands on this, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion around it, right? Whereas with and 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 I think the difference with Harvey Weinstein is again, there's really been no discussion. Right. Like he molested and possibly raped right. who knows i don't know you know but he he's a bad guy whereas right. aziz some people say he's bad he's awful some people say right. that was just a bad date uh but there's at least discussion right but but i think the the mistake would be to say aziz is the same as harvey weinstein right but i think you still have to have the discussion about harvey weinstein so nobody's denying the fact that this guy was he was a piece of garbage but is every one of his situations uh, the same? Are they all these kind of situations? And I know I get a lot of flack for this, but it's just the truth. Um, if you, there are definitely women who have put themselves in that position, knowing that this was a deal. That sec, I'm, 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 tr I'm, um, I'm basically giving my sexual resources for a deal in the movie industry. And they were totally aware of that. And I don't know who that was or who it wasn't. I can't, you know, I don't know the story, but I'm saying there's an array of different um, levels of this kind of bad behavior. Right, but even then, let's say uh, the, the, the problem, let's say there, there are cases like that. The problem is that Harvey Weinstein assumed he can always make a deal. Right. And in some cases, he couldn't, but he thought he could, and then right. went over the line. Whereas Aziz... He's the dude who went out on a date. In my mind, he's the dude who went out on a date. And not only that, but when the girl said, you know, this was, I thought this was inappropriate, the first thing he did was apologize. So it, there's a... You know, for us to think that um, in order for this, for things to move forward, you're always going to have imperfect allies, you know, but we are all imperfect. That's interesting. So in order to move forward, what do you mean by imperfect allies? Okay, so you might have somebody that might have done something inappropriate. Uh, so like Morgan Spurlock, mm -hmm. uh, the, the um, super size me dude. Nobody accused him. He came forward and said, I had done these things and da, 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 da. But then that was not... That should have been something where we go, okay, this guy is moving forward to change. Um, look, I, as a, as a kid, we would say uh, if somebody did something, we would go, oh, that's gay. Mm. And now I don't say that. Mm -hmm. And I don't say the word faggot and stuff like that during my set because it's inappropriate. Mm. But there was a time when I said that. That was, if you look at Eddie Murphy's Raw, he... <laughs> 
he just rips uh, the gay community. But we learn what's better, and we try as we as we learn more, we are expected to do better. And if we do that, what else could you ask for? Are we really asking people to be perfect? Because mm. nobody's perfect. Need, and, and so you got to have that discussion in order to find where the line is or where the line isn't. So, so let's, I, I want to, how did you, I, I want to roll back to how did you get into comedy in the first place? So I was a, I, um, I went to college at SUNY New Pulse and I was in a fraternity. I was in Omega Psi Phi fraternity, a pleasure fraternity. And um, I was in a, a kind of a shitty relationship, um, kind of with an abusive chick. Not physically abusive, just emotionally abusive. I was going to say physically, you're a big guy, I'm sure no, you can no, handle no, no. it. But it was, a, it was a physical, it was an emotionally abusive. And I realized now that she kind of came from an emotionally and a physic, physically abusive background. And so this is kind of how she communicated. And I pledged the fraternity and um, somebody was doing, uh, I always worked out and stuff. And somebody was doing a male review strip show for uh, Toys for Tots, like, and each each Greek fraternity was being represented. And a so guy, a strip show for yeah. a toy charity. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So, um, and uh, there was a guy who they had from my fraternity. He backed out last minute. Somebody called me, and I was like, yeah, I'm in, because I'm always kind of down. And I did that, and I started, which started my whole career in, in male stripping, right? So I started male stripping, and then when I left school, I actually had a group and I did, you know, that's what I did for 10 years. Um, and then I've always was somebody who was, I was always fascinated by comedy. I was always a guy who snuck home from school. Wait, wait, wait. You, so you were a stripper for? For 10 years. For 10 years. Yeah. And just out of, well, out of curiosity on the economics of that, what's, how, what would you make per night? Um, if I did a private show, I make anywhere from one hundred fifty dollars to two hundred fifty per show. What like a private show? If you're at the club and some guy says, "Let's go to the back room" or something, or some girl. If I go, if I did, if like if you had a bachelor bachelorette party and I went and did the bachelor party, it would go anywhere from one hundred twenty five dollars to two hundred fifty dollars plus tips. Plus tips, and was it mostly women? It was women. Uh, okay. Women. And uh, so I was doing that, and so on a weekend. I would do anywhere from 10 to 15 shows on a weekend, right? Um, which is pretty good money in 1989, 1990, you know? Yeah. I was a young kid just running around making it. Plus, you made tips. Anywhere from 50 bucks all the way up to $200, and you could make as much in tips as you did. In, uh, and, uh, and then they had these huge shows that were going on in all over New York and up and down the East Coast, like 500, 800 women at a time and then you would go to those shows and you would perform and then you would hand out your business card and that would drum up business let's stop to take a quick break we'll be right back every podcast i do is so personal and special to me the podcast is all about how people can be better performers even peak performers at whatever it is they are passionate about. So help people discover this podcast. Help me, help the listeners. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. And also, 
If you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltucher.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. Do you ever feel like because you got, I mean, you're you're stripping Mm. in front of 500 women who are presumably enjoying it because they're paying you and, and giving you their cards afterwards. You're probably getting so much confidence with your clothes off. Did you ever have less confidence with your clothes on just trying to meet a girl in a party than um, when your clothes are off? Well, I knew guys, well, I knew guys that if they were at a party and it wasn't in the perspective of stripping, if they weren't picking up a girl at, at the show because that's your leverage, that's mm-hmm. that's your framing where it, it frames your value, they had they didn't just had no game. But I didn't, I was, you know, I mean, I mean, we talk all the time and I'm very philosophical about it, but I was learning lessons from the things that were happening, you know, so understanding what those cosmic and universal laws underneath that, that make you successful. And uh, so I didn't really have that problem. And I was always kind of building a personality where a lot of guys just got laid because they were stripping. And if they didn't, you know, if they did, if they weren't stripping, if it wasn't a strip venue, they couldn't. They they didn't know how to mm. approach. They didn't, they didn't have the confidence. Yeah, but it, but it, like we said, everything is relevant. Mm-hmm. So if you understand the dynamics, you can just reapply the dynamics in any social situation. So like what what you're really saying is basically, let's say you're in a new social situation where the highest status is not placed on the Being best naked. stripper. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You figure out what where the status is being placed, and you. Not necessarily fake your way into that, but you figure out what parts of you could could claim that status. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I think what I've come as I've gotten older, my conclusion is authenticity, um, integrity, authenticity, and empathy are the three things that that supersede everything else. What's the difference between integrity and authenticity? Uh, that I am who I am. And I say who I am, and I am who I am, and I act in that manner as I make these declarations about who I am. Mm. Uh, integrity is that I keep my word, that I, I, I'm i truthful, and I'm honest. And I guess it's connected, but I think there's a little right. slight connotation, different content. And the empathy is to understand how you know how other people feel how, mm. in a, a certain social situation. This is what this person is going through, which doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't negate their wrongdoing, but it but understanding it helps helps you understand and help you helps you grow as a person to have that empathy because you're living their life through their eyes. And so and so you do this for 10 years and obviously now you have you have huge experience as a performer on mm, stage. Yeah. And uh you start getting into Well what I did was I started hiring uh, comics like Tracy Morgan, Mike Epps to open my shows. This was before they got they, before they were famous. So you were the famous male stripper hiring Tracy Morgan yeah, to yeah. be like the, the 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 feature while you were the closer. The open. They would open. Yeah. Uh, they would open, tell jokes, and then we would start the show. Yeah. So it was a little, but but it was really because I enjoyed comedy so much. You know, um, like I said, I was a guy who in elementary school I would sneak home and listen to my father's Richard Pryor and Red Fox albums. I was a kid, after bedtime, I would sneak up and watch Johnny Carson and watch the comic on Johnny Carson. So I was always had that interest in it. And then um, and then I kind of brought that as another element of the stripping. So I always wanted to do it, 
and I always kind of wrote stuff down, but I was so entrenched in the stripper world, I I didn't think anybody would take me serious as a comic. You know, I figured they would go, oh, shut up and take your clothes off. You know, <laughs> so I never really embarked on it um, until 2000, 2000 is when I first started. How, how old were you then? Oh, uh, I don't know, like 34 or something like that. So so what what is it? You start going to open mics, you started going up on stage? Well, uh, it's I have a process in which I learned. The first thing I did was I, I, I went on uh, Amazon and I bought every book that I could possibly uh which is funny because that's what I've been doing with Bitcoin now. And since I met you, I've been absorbing everything. So I think, um, okay, so do we have do we have the book Choose Yourself here? We should uh, get Dante Choose Yourself. It's like my big, Bitcoin's one hundredth of what I do is just Choose Yourself. It's a good book. Um, you would like you would like it. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> You're always always a pleasure. Shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, uh, the um, I'm, I'm trying. To, I was going to say something. Uh, so, you, so you, 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 I asked you if you're going on open mics. If you're, you, you so, start buying every book. So I wrote, bought every book and I read every book that I could possibly read on. So, um, so let me let me go back a little bit. I went to SUNY New Paltz, but I went on a, on a fencing scholarship. And the reason why I went on a fencing scholarship, my father knew a guy who who was supposed to go to the Olympics. I'm not sure what year, but he popped his Achilles heel in fencing, and. He ended up taking a civil service job with the Parks Department. My father worked for the Parks Department, and this guy was teaching inner city kids how to fence. And my father asked me if I would wanted to do it, and I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. Sword fighting, I'm in, <laughs> right? And I got really good at it. But the reason why I got my hit, my instructor was an amazing instructor in that. So for the first six months of me learning how to fence, all I did, he never, put, he never even put a weapon in my hand. He just, I just, he would just go advance, advance, retreat, retreat, advance, retreat, advance. I would just learn the fundamentals of the footwork. Then he would go lunge and then recover. Six months I did that. And as a, I think I was like 11 or something like that. I, I was like, when do I pick up the sword? And they wouldn't let me do it. Then he finally put a sword in my, he put the foil. I, I fenced foil. He put the, the weapon in my hand. And then I was like, okay, now we're going to, and he was like, no, extend Recover, <laughs> extend, and so um, from my fencing, um, you know, my fencing history, I learned that having strong fundamentals is everything. So learning what the different micro skills were. Right. So for instance, with fencing, it was like how do you advance and and move back? That's one skill. Right. Footwork but, is important. And then with the when you had the the, the sword or the foil, uh, how you extend and retreat and, and, and parry and stuff like so that. So there's all these micro skills that are independent of each other right. that you have to learn. And it's so the same if, thing in many skills. But if that, you learn those in 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 excess where you have that muscle memory, when you put them together, it's much easier to integrate them. There's still a learning curve even to integrating them because as soon as you start walking and yeah. and <laughs> and and attacking, in your head right, everything's you. But you have that muscle memory because your fundamentals are so strong. And so that was a lesson that I learned very early on. And so my patience, I realized that I was very impatient at that time. But once I started actually fencing, I was better than guys who were many years ahead of me because my fundamentals were so strong. Um, and I ended up getting a scholarship. I got a partial scholarship to SUNY New Post for, uh, for fencing. That's great. So, 
But and, then, so with comedy, what did you see? You started buying a lot of books, but what did you see as the initial micro skills you needed to learn? So for, first, fundamentally, there's uh, there's different kinds of jokes. Mm. Double entendres, misdirection, lists, they're all different kinds of jokes that you learn. And then when you learn all of those jokes, um, it teaches you the fundamentals of comedy. Comedy writing, how to write a joke, this, that. Then there was, you know, some books actually taught fundamentals of Hamlin on Mike. How not, little things like not uh, not moving, shaking the mic, not uh, you know moving the mic stand away so that people can see you, and all of those. But it's just like anything else, just like a Picasso. Once you learn all the things, then you throw away, and you do you know you have the ability to do whatever you want to do because you have the the poetic license to do whatever you want. But you need to learn those fundamentals. And what I find is most comics don't understand the fundamentals of comedy in the first place. And they'll constantly be doing new bits, new bits, new bits. Whereas if you have a five or seven minute set and you just work that set until you're bored of it, you will start to explore these kind of esoteric elements or these nuanced things about comedy that you wouldn't normally get if you're doing new material. You know what I mean? Uh, the analogy I use is try to put a light bulb in a socket on a broken ladder, on ice, on a dolly, because everything is moving at different. So you can't. You have, there's no stability. Whereas if the foundation is sound, if you understand different types of jokes and the structure, the technical structure. Because I also, I also was, a, you know, I'm just a pretty scary guy to people who don't know me, you know, at first glance. And so I didn't think that people would laugh at me because I'm not a guy that genuinely people laugh at. So I, I felt like I wanted the structure, the technical structure of my jokes to be uh, impeccable. So like, so like describe, I don't know, like a lot of, it, it sort of reminds me of poker a little bit and I'll mm -hmm. tell you why. A lot of people, just the average person off the street, you ask them, hey, are you good at poker? Almost everyone says yes because mm -hmm. they don't realize there's actually like a hard skill there. Sure. And same thing with, with stand-up comedy. People are like, oh I'm yeah, I'm, I make my friends laugh yeah, like yeah. at the dinner table. I make my my family laugh. Yeah. So I must be able to tell a good joke. But when you talk about the technical structure of, of writing and telling a joke, it's very different from sure. telling a joke to your friends. Sure. How would you describe that difference? Like maybe give like an, an example or something. So um, you when you're making your friends laugh, you all have experiences and you have a prerequisite of your lives that you've spent together. And so there's things that are funny to you because you have the experience. You have a you have a foundation that you're all a, a commonality in that foundation. Kind of like a, an internal group language that sure. only you guys speak. Absolutely. So it's funny. So all you really got to do is get the punchline. Mm -hmm. So now when you're doing a set in front of a crowd, you got people from Denmark, people from the Bronx, people from Idaho, some people from Florida, some people from Wales and Scotland. And, and and none of them know you. None of them know you, but they also don't have this kind of group mentality either, this this inner language. They all their reference, the references of their life is 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 different. And so you have to bring them together on a on an even plane first and have them all understanding what you're talking about before you do the punchline. So um if you look at comedy, comedy and a, a math a mathematical representation of a of a misdirection joke is two, four, six, thirty-seven. That's that's the joke. The punchline is the absurd at the end. But you have to first get the person to think 
in two, four, six, and then when you're thinking eight, I go 37. And they're all, whether they're from Denmark or Texas, they're all thinking eight by the time you get to six. Right, right. Now, the better comics can go two, four, 37, because you only need two mathematical expressions to get people thinking in the same direction. So that means you have to explain the joke in as briefly as possible to hit the punchline. And and so uh, audiences, like people are innately selfish. So they because we are all bags of of uh, of of need, you know. We're cold. We want to get warm. We're hungry. We want food. We we want companionship. We want whatever. We that's if you think about it. Every second of our life, we're we're satisfying these needs. So we're innately we're selfish in nature, you know, just as 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 organisms. So when you're talking to somebody, they don't they don't care about what you're talking about. You have to make them care, but. The more attention they give you, the bigger the payoff has to be. So it's kind of like a slot machine. So if you throw one quarter in a slot machine, you hit it and you hit the jackpot. Even if you hit it for just $25, it's, there's more joy in, in, than sitting at a slot machine for six hours, putting 400 in, right, and gaining $1,000. Because the investment uh, is higher, so the payoff needs to be higher. So the smaller the investment, the 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 more elation the you know the hmm. more people. So that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. So what's a case where you learned early on? Okay, here's a joke. I'm gonna and and people are laughing, but not as much. But then you trimmed some of the the words, and you got higher laughs. Well, I kind of before I started doing, I, I had an understanding of this. Mm-hmm. So my, I'll tell you my first joke ever. My first joke was um, for for a crowd. For my my first joke. Uh, my first two jokes was this. I've never like so. I, I I never had many. So first of all, I'm a big scary guy, and I was like, I never had many friends. Mostly just hostages. That was you. <laughs> That's can, funny. It can't get any leaner than that. Yeah. Um, I was close with my dad. We used to play dodge brick. Right. Yeah. You you can't that setup and punchline. It doesn't really get any any leaner than that. You know. So I had an understanding of the economy of words and the fact that the invest, the emotional investment, the payoff has to, the quicker you pay them off, the better off you are. Um, so I understood that. And, um, and I also, you know, we were talking about the audience manipulating you into, uh, into a rhythm. So it, it's Pavlovian. So what happens is you end up, um, you're manipulating your audience into laughter, but when they give you the laughter, unbeknownst to you, you start to program yourself into certain rhythms and tones. So, which could be a bad thing. Oh, it is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it's it's necessary in terms of your progression. If your progression, if you're going to move beyond that. So, for instance, you start to talk in a rhythm. You start to write in a rhythm. All your jokes start to have a rhythm. And if you think about it, you know, because I mean, you, I know you're like me and, and very analytical. If you think of any comic that you can think of, they have a rhythm. There's a rhythm. So like if you're in the next room and you can't hear the words, but you hear the murmuring of, of their comedy, you can tell who's on stage mm. by the murmuring. And remember, remember like, you know, uh, like for, for instance, a tell to be like, he does that kind of Right. But you get to know his rhythm. Now, the problem if 
if the joke is the punchline is the surprise and you know the rhythm the 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 funny dissipates as i can anticipate it's the rhythm. It's so interesting because that's sort of why, you know, in Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, mm. he sort of suggests that that's why he quit stand-up ultimately because he spent 12 years developing one rhythm and people were, he would be he would be filling football stadiums and they would all shout the punchline before he could get to it. Right. And he was like, what am I going to do now? I can't, I'm not going to spend 12 years developing a new rhythm. So he stopped doing stand-up completely. Or you develop a style that doesn't have a rhythm. Mm. That's weird. That's the disconnect. So it becomes dun-dun-dun-dun-dun and everybody says, goes dun-dun. Now, you may not know what the exact punchline, but you know the punchline is coming and it's not as funny because you know the punchline is coming. So if you watch me what I've learned is, uh, so I'm confusing that rhythm. Um, initially, I used to confuse the rhythm because the pattern, uh, like if it was a number pattern, the pattern, the string of numbers would be so long that you couldn't, it was difficult to figure out the pattern. And by the time you figured out the pattern, I was already off the stage. But then I've learned that stream of consciousness itself um, is doesn't have a rhythm. So... If I'm on stage and a girl walks by and, and she's hot and I pause, I pause, that pause has no rhythm to it. It just, it happens in real time. It's real stream of consciousness. And if I'm having a real conversation, like we're having a conversation, there's no rhythm in the conversation because you're we're engaging, we're interacting in on a human way right in this moment. So to take that and take it on the stage is makes you uh, it makes you in bulletproof to nobody can ever get a beat on your rhythm. So even when you do a bit, like if you notice, I'll do a bit, and there's things that I will do that are similar, but it's always kind of has a different. I won't always word it the same way. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I've seen you perform a lot now, and um, I remember the very first time, and I've o I've always thought each one was hilarious. I've never seen you bomb, right. and. Uh, the very first time, I thought you were all crowd work, and it was all hilarious. Now I know there's a lot more structure right. in it, that you have the spine and the crowd works around it. Right. One thing I would say is uh, similar. You have a way of doing your voice mm -hmm. that is very non-threatening. You start, you're leaning, yeah. first off, you get as non-threatening as possible. You get on the chair, you That's lean it. back yeah. so that they're not, you're not like looming right. over them. Whereas like other comedians loom over them sometimes right. to get status, but you don't do that. You lean, you lean back. Well, that's an awareness because I know that I, as soon as I walk on stage, my presence is so big that it sometimes can work against me. But I would say like like Godfrey uh, is an example, great example, great comedian, yeah. where he will loom over because he's doing the alpha status sure. thing, and that's how sure. he'll control the crowd. It's just sure. a different style. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're you're making an active attempt to be non-threatening, and you'll even lower your voice. I don't know if yeah. I would say an octave, but like yeah, a few yeah. pitches, sure, sure. you'll be like, uh, I I don't think she knows what stabbing is. Right, you know, right. it's a little slower. It's a right. little lower. Right. Uh, no, I mean higher pitched. Right. Right. So so, so you you but you when you really it, you okay. So think of it as you're painting a picture, and you have a palette of different colors, right? But those palettes, not colors, it's it's type of jokes, double entendre, lists, misdirection. But it's also tone is another set of colors. Characters is another set of colors. 
Crowd work is another seven. What's more? Give more, like more micro skills. There's like a thousand micro skills. If you paint that picture and you use, when you start to realize all that you have to use, then it's, it, even when it's this, you're doing a set and you've seen stuff, there's always something different to it because there's always something special that I'm trying to give the audience on an organic level every time they come to see me. So I've had people have come to see me four or five times and they go, I mean, I, I saw you before and I, I mean, this was, and, and then I also will have, I'll react to what's going on. So something will happen and I'll react to that. And then that becomes a moment. Again, like in comedy, what's so interesting is that's a skill you have to learn. Sure. Whereas let's say poker as a game or sales as a business these are. This is actually the same critical skill. Like if sure. you get if you get dealt a pair of aces, it still could, whether you win or not it still depends completely on what the other people were dealt sure, and sure, how they play. Sure. And, and in sales, you can't just give the same sales pitch from one company to the next because they have different needs. But I think most people don't realize that this is like an actual skill they need to learn how to adapt sure. situation by situation. Well, um, Ottawa Sanctus Sun says that. There's a there's a uh, a quote from Art of War where they ask if you have a, a a fort with four sides, right? And what should you do? Should you put equal troops on every side? Should you uh should you put more in the front as the troops are coming and on the side? And then, but the the reality is is your ability to mobilize the troops where their need is really what makes you successful. Your ability mm. to mobilize troops as quickly as possible is what wins the war. And so you have to be so equipped with all these micro skills and know which micro skills you got to go to at the moment when it, and it has to happen instantaneously. So how do you learn that? And and I guess that gets back to so you you bought all the books, you studied comedy. I guess you started going on stage somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Like, how did you start to... So I had a set. I had a pretty tight set. The first... Uh, you know Laurie Kilmartin? You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Laurie Kilmartin was the first host. She hosted... A, I did a bringer show. We got to bring people. And she hosted. I've, I've hosted with her. Right, right. Up. Okay. And, and, uh, and I went on stage and she she hosted and... I went up and I just I my jokes were sh razor sharp. They were very econ you know economical with words. And I was like bang 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 bang. And she was like, "Wow, that, how long you been doing?" I was like, "This is my first show." And she was like, "What? Like how? Like it's so tight." But it wasn't tight because I was extraordinary. I had put the work in and I had done all the technical work first. So it was just, you know, the, the geniuses of today stand on the shoulders of the geniuses of yesterday. You and I talked about the difference between, on my podcast, we talked about the difference between the person who looks at the world in terms of similarities and the person. Right. So learning to accept the system that had, there, there was plenty of comics before us. There were books that tell you how to do this. Now, it doesn't tell you the nuance, but why not? Start with that foundations. Why not start with that advance, advance, retreat, retreat, that those basic fundamentals and then build on that. And so it, it put me so far ahead of my class because I was already had the fundamentals down and I was practicing them. So I get on stage and I kill. And then I kill. I also knew 
um, that people, how people perceived me, and I was perceived as a kind of scary dude. And so I used to do, I did a character when I first started, I was doing a character. So I would get on stage and I would go, I would just pause almost 30 seconds, not say anything. And they would just look at me. I was bigger and muscular. My neck was huge. And, and then I would go, uh, before I start, I just want to say it would be to everybody's advantage to laugh <laughs> as much as possible. I'd say um, my, uh, my psychiatrist says <laughs> I have fits of, of uh, violence <laughs> and it's brought on by a lack of acceptance. And that was my opening joke. That's great. And they would f blow up. So that was 18 years ago. Why don't you still do that? Because that character, so I have a theory about characters. Anytime you see a character, right? So for instance, the theory goes, okay, if you look at Bart Simpson, Bart Simpson's been on TV, what, 20 years? Maybe yeah, 29. More? 29 years, okay. But he's still nine years old. Yeah. Why? Why is he still nine years old? I mean, he's nine years old because he's a cartoon, but he's nine years old because he only ages a half hour at a time. So even though it's 29 years, it's he only ages, he only matures in the episode. That's that's his a when when you're not watching him on the episode, he's not mature and he's not nine years old. So it's nine years and a half hour. The first episode one, he was nine years and a half hour. So what you find with comics that do a character, they only age on stage. Mm. So they're not talking about the so when they're off stage, you're still living and you're still growing and you're maturing. So now you're stuck doing these juvenile jokes that you did because you're in the character, you're not in yourself. And so I need I knew that I, like I had a I had a daughter and I wanted to talk about a daughter. I wanted I was married at the time. I wanted to talk about that. But that guy who was on stage was this ex-con who scared people and he didn't have those things. He didn't have a daughter. It's so funny because I of course have been grappling with this exact arc. Like I feel I have led a very complicated and interesting life that I mm -hmm. want to be able to talk about. But my very first joke, which was a hack joke, mm -hmm. an easy laugh, was uh, I've had a bad day. Even right outside, some woman just said to me, look, there's ugly Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. And because uh, right. I look like Harry Potter. Right, right, right. So, but and then the audience would laugh. But right. It was like a hack, stupid joke. It yeah, yeah. had nothing to do with my right, right, life. Right. And so I've been gradually getting more and more into telling truths about my life. But that's right. that's hard. But as opposed to well, it's, it's just the path. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't mean to like shit on any other comic, but uh, here's uh, I'll give you an Are example. Are you about to shit on me? No, no. <laughs> um, so when I watched Jim Gaffigan as a young comic, I was amazed. Like I would watch him come here in this club and I would watch him do 15 minutes on bread. Just pull it and just do. And I was just amazed, right? And then as I became a comic who was on that path, the path that you want to go to where it's, there's an authenticity. It started to annoy me that that he was talking about bread. So I'll give you an example. I, I was at an uh, I was at Gotham, and I and they uh, George Wallace came in, Jerry Seinfeld, and I was supposed to close, and they all came in before me, right? And so now I got to close behind these monsters, right? And uh, which I don't care because it's. You know, we we're talking about boxing. It's, there's always the guy in the corner of the gym that's uh, beating the piss out of the bag, and nobody wants to give him a fight because 
<laughs> they don't want to get beat because they know because there's a reality. And I always felt like I was that dude that that was the beast that nobody. I mean, I use a different analogy. I go, I I have a uh, I have a bag of uncut cocaine in my fucking basement, and uh, nobody knows I have it. But when <laughs> when I start getting the samples out, everybody's gonna get it. But I mean, that's a whole that comes from my anyway, whatever. Um, <laughs> comes from your past. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> but um, so. I'm Gaffigan is working on a new bit. Wait, wait, wait. So, so Seinfeld, George Wallace, everybody comes in. Right. They all come in and they go on before me and I have to close behind them, right? <laughs> and uh, and everybody's like, oof, oof. But I'm like, you know, I have a rougher time closing behind Godfrey than closing behind because Godfrey is another one of those, those gym beasts, you know, who hasn't really gotten what he deserves yet because he's strong and, and just, you know, hasn't gotten the break that he needs. So um, I go on after them, but but the, here's, here was the point. Gaffigan goes up now. Gaffigan almost his wife almost died. She had a tumor, and she had cancer, and she had a huge tumor in her head. They had to take the and this is recently, recently, yeah. And Gaffigan has five children, and so Gaffigan is able to do his life because of this woman who who takes care of his kids and takes care of his home. I haven't seen his act since then, actually. Like, how's... what? Well, he's talking about it, but he, is, he, is, he was working on his bit, and, he, and the bit is kind of like, um, he goes, oh, my wife almost died of cancer. Um, and I went in, and the doctor said, uh, he goes, uh, oh, yeah, she has a tumor. She has a brain tumor, and uh, it's the size of a pear. And it was. he goes, the joke is... Uh, it's almost like the doctor looked at me and goes, this guy's not going to get millimeters, right? <laughs> Which is a funny joke, yeah. right? But Plus ties into his whole like stupidity around his food choices and right, so right. on. But here's the thing. What I want to hear about is the fact that he thought that his wife might die and he has five children that she has basically been his rock. And what was his feeling when he thought that she might be dead and he might have to take control of this whole family without her. To me, that's where the funny so, is. So, so I I agree with you, and I agree that that's the goal. And yeah. I think um, some comedians get to that goal, and some don't. Uh, but it's really hard because so much. Like, let's say on a joke, five things go through your head. There's a premise, then there's a punchline, there's yeah. how to connect them. But like on something like that, a thousand things are going through his head and he has to kind of tie them together and figure out how to make this sad thing funny or this thing that's been complicated in his life, how to make it three words and funny. Right. That's, that's yeah, so hard. Yeah, but we're also talking about somebody who's been doing it over 20 years. Yeah, so you're saying he should have been able to go in that direction. Ability, he definitely has the skill set to do that. So, like, yeah. so what's the worst thing that's happened to you in the past 18 years that you then right away, as fast as possible, turned it into a joke? I almost died last year. Okay, yes. so what happened? So I, you want me to tell you a joke or you want me to tell you what happened? First time what happened. All right, so what happened was I went in for, I ripped, I was doing a, I was on a blacklist and I ripped, I did a stunt and I ripped my quads, two of my four quads. And I went in for a surgery and the surgery was supposed to be a simple surgery. They reattached my, cut my leg open and they reattached the quads. I didn't know I had sleep apnea and the anesthesia I stopped breathing, mm. and because I had the anesthesia, my the, the sleep apnea didn't respond to me, stopped breathing, and so I wasn't breathing. Mm. And they had to intubate me, took tubes and shoved the tubes down my throat, and they had to resuscitate me. And then for three days, I was in the ICU with a tube down my throat, 
to tied to the gurney and they wouldn't give me any anesthesia because that's the thing that stopped me from from breathing. And for three days, I gagged until I was exhausted, fell asleep, woke up, had the tube done, and gagged again until I fell exhausted. And this just kept going up three days straight. I literally watched the clock. I was fully awake the whole time, except when I became so exhausted, I fell asleep. Okay, now tell now tell that as a joke. So the so the joke is um, I, I don't mean to put you joke on demand, yeah, but it's yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. now. The, the joke was um, I died early this year. Um, uh, I uh, ripped two of my four quads. Um, I didn't even know I had four quads. Right? When you think of quad, you don't think of quad. All right, whatever. I'm an idiot. And then I go. So I have um, I I have sleep apnea. I didn't know what sleep apnea was. So if you don't know what sleep apnea is, you go to sleep and your body goes. Hey, um, I don't know if you heard, but you're not breathing. Wake the fuck up. And then you go, <gasps> it's great when you have a wife or a girlfriend because she watches you die over and over and over all night. It's great for her. So um, uh, went in for the surgery and my body was like, hey, I don't know if you heard, but you're not breathing. And, my, and the anesthesia was like, don't worry. You don't have to breathe. It's fine. So now I'm not breathing. The doctor sees that I'm not breathing, and he intubates me, takes this tube, shoves it down my throat. I start gagging. I'm like, right? The, um, the tendency is to rip the tube out of your throat, so they have to tie you to the gurney. So I'm tied to the gurney. Tube is down my throat. I'm gagging. I'm like, this is going on for three days. I'm just watching the clock, gagging until I sleep, wake and sleep, and wake and sleep. I'm gagging all the time. I'm gagging. I'm like, this is going on over and over. Day, three days, I'm gagging. I'm And the whole time, I'm thinking... Man, you ladies in your blowjobs, you are amazing. How do you do that? This I didn't even know it was this hard. It changed me as a person. I used to push my girl's head down. I don't do that anymore because that's disrespectful. Um, and and uh, so I went through my. I, I had I almost died this year, and I wish I'd learned something profound, like a road less traveled. And the only thing I learned was that I can't suck dick. <laughs> I don't, so that's that's the joke. But it it's not far from. What the actual story is. Right. You just kind of, you basically threw in some classic types of punchlines and that made and a I real actually, story. I actually thought that while I, the, I was choking, I was like, why would a girl ever blow a dude? Like, this is horrible. That, like, I mean, that was actually, the joke came from me actually thinking that, that this is, this is horrible. Like, why do this? You know? And this, so the joke, so I think you get to the point where you don't really have to go that far from what the truth is because it's interesting in itself. Right. But when you're when you're a comic and you you're trying to figure out you want to be funny, you think that you have to add uh, all this other stuff, classic punchlines and lists and the rule of 3 and K sounds and all these things that you learn. But you learn that it, it's the human condition is universal. Even people in Sweden and, and Denmark and the Bronx, everybody is still human beings. That's the human condition. And if you just learn to say it the way it happened and you're authentic and truthful, people will laugh at it because they get it. Like when I'm telling the story about how I'm choking and you could see the, the pain. But also you're doing... Uh, as opposed to when you're just describing what happened to you, when you're describing it as a joke, you're doing a little bit of an act out, sure. right? Like you're doing the gagging sound. Because I'm sound. sucking you in. I'm, I want you to feel what I was feeling in that moment. Right. So the, the act out is to, to pull you in. 
But if you think about it, the story that I it's, it ain't really that far off. No, from from what the story really was, you know. So so now you're 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 on stage a year, two years. When do you start feeling like okay, hey, this is this is happening for me? Um, as far as what industry wise or yeah, industry wise or or your confidence as a comic me. or it's still not happening for me. But, but but it has. I mean, you've been in a lot of you know. You've been all over the place. You've 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 you've, you've performed all around. Yeah, you've yeah. been in shows. Uh, when did you start feeling the confidence as a comic? When did you start kind of consistently just like destroying the room? Like I've seen you destroy the room. Like belly, everyone's just yeah, belly yeah. laughing. Well, which I, by the way, not every comic does. Even the no. best comics out there, yeah, 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 they don't get the belly laughs that you get, which is also an interesting thing too. I want to yeah, talk yeah. about. Yeah. Well, um, I always did that. Like even when I was doing the character, because mm -hmm. I had a real, I had a real sense of who I was as a person, and I knew how people perceived me. So if you know how people perceive it, so the minute I walk on stage, people make assumptions about me. Those assumptions are the setup to the joke. So sometimes I don't even have to say set the joke up. I just got to say the punchline. So if I go, why is the bouncer on stage telling a joke? As soon as I walk on stage, that's what they think. So me understanding how they perceive me is the setup because I'm almost reading their mind, which is a scary thing because you don't always want to know what people think of you. I mean, what if they don't think good things about you? In a lot of cases, people don't think good. So you got to have the confidence to understand what they think about you and be okay with that, which is kind of the self-exploration. I mean, that's why I think comedy is such a special thing because you don't really get funny until you know what people think of you. And looking in that mirror is a scary thing sometimes. But, let, but let's take Jim Gaffigan. It's such a great example because he is, uh, he does fill Madison Square Garden. Sure. His shows do great. Everything, everything, he's performed in front of the Pope like he's because he's considered like the ultimate yeah. clean comic. Uh, and let's take the bread situation. He tells right. 15 minutes of jokes about bread. It's because part of how he sees people perceive him as somebody who eats a lot and eats unhealthy. Right. And also, he looks like the classic cliche of a white bread right. kind of sure, human. Sure. So he can relate that to the, the word bread. Sure, sure. And and then um, uh, that's how he thinks, that's how he feels he's being authentic as opposed to going deeper. But maybe he's afraid, or I don't know, I shouldn't say that. He absolutely is afraid. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't know that he's never told me that, but that's always why somebody doesn't dig deeper. Mm. It's the fear of being exposed. It's the fear of not being accepted. It's the fear of. Whereas I feel like Chris Rock, like whatever's going on in his life that year, like he just got divorced recently, he'll go deeper. Yeah, but also the his persona that you can't that actually, if you know that historically, Martin Lawrence and him, he had broke before Martin Lawrence, and Martin Lawrence broke after him, but Martin Lawrence was on the come up. And he was opening for Martin Lawrence. And Martin Lawrence was kicking his ass on the road because Martin Lawrence, I think, is a, is a funnier dude, like a naturally funnier dude. So there's people who understand comedy on a technical level and there's people who are funny, just funny yeah. individuals. And not that one can't be better than the other, but the point is if the guy who's naturally funny is also technically sound, just like any other sport, or anything else, you're gonna surpass the guy who is technically sound and works hard. But if you're not working as hard, like I don't know anybody that works harder than 
Chris Rock at this. But I also, so he created that persona, that rhythm, because Martin was kicking his ass on the road. Like he was burying him on the road. And so he created this persona to get people involved, to, to, to get this emotion from people more, which is interesting because now I think he's so much a better comic now, but he still holds on to that cadence. Hmm. But the cadence is not real. Nobody can say that I have a cadence. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and uh, we've had this discussion where, like, if you look at Dave Chappelle, yeah. he has, like, in his last special that he did, at one point he's talking seriously to the audience about why he left Comedy Central that time. Yeah. He had, like, a serious voice that was, yeah. like, one octave below his funny voice. Right. It's almost like he uses his voice to signal to the audience when to, to when laugh, he, right. which is kind of a cadence. Yeah, you know? it is. Oh, oh, um, Attell absolutely has a cadence. D Attell definitely does. Right. With oh, Ch you were saying uh, Chappelle. Chappelle. Yeah. Right. Well, Chappelle is actually, like, his last few specials, it's so close to his, his real voice mm. now. Like... I, I Except think, that one scene at the end, I don't know if you saw the very he talks last about the Iceberg Slim. Uh, is that where he talks about Iceberg Slim? Yeah. Or it, it, when's he using the serious voice? When he's talking about um, how he left Comedy Central, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the Iceberg Slim yeah. thing, which is really deep, which is actually just deep. It's not even. Right. And, that, and he's, he's using his serious voice yeah. then. He's not using yeah. his like higher octave funny voice. Well, I think you don't have to. You don't always have to be funny. You can also be... So another, you know, micro skill is just being interesting. Right. I think Dave Chappelle is almost more interesting than funny, even though he started out 25 years ago as yeah, a yeah. teenage comic. Yeah, well, he's probably 30, because he started when he was 16. Yeah. So he's probably 30 years and close, more yeah. like 30-something. But, um, yeah, I, I think it becomes you become interesting and poignant and funny... It's part of being interesting and poignant, but it's not the only thing. I mean, I've had uh, I've had situations where I've had like well, like when I if you watch me do an hour, um, you start you create a relationship with the audience. So there's a difference in in the time frame of comedy. Meaning, um, so I'll give you an example. Charlie Murphy, God bless the dead, rest in peace, good friend of mine. But Charlie was famous when he started doing comedy, and so. He would, he could, because he was famous, he could go on stage and he could bomb for 35 minutes. And I totally respect the fact that well, he, Why was he famous? He was a he actor? He was or? Charlie Murphy's, Eddie, Eddie Murphy's, Murphy's brother. brother. Okay. But he was on the Dave Chappelle show and that blew him up really mm. famous. And then he started doing comedy after the Dave Chappelle show. He didn't start till then. So the audience knew him. They knew him already. And the clubs knew him. And so he had that kind of entertainment capital that he could he could sell. That So he could go walk in any comedy club and they would put him up. And he would do 35, bomb for 35 minutes, which I don't even think I could, like I don't even know if I got that, those kind of balls. So he had huge balls. But... I don't think he ever learned the economy of words because he didn't have to. See, when you're a comic and nobody knows who you are, you, you, you're fighting to get five minutes. Right. So you don't get seven minutes until the five minutes are funny. And then you don't get the 10 minutes till the seven minutes is funny. Then you don't get 12 minutes till the 10 is funny, and so on and so forth. So you learn the economy of words because you're not famous. Whereas when you're famous... You, you can go on stage and bomb for 35 minutes, right? And it's fine because 
your fame allows you to do that, you know? I guess I've seen Seinfeld or maybe Judd Apatow talk about this. Like even Seinfeld says his fame really only buys him 30 seconds or a minute, but maybe that's not true. Maybe he's just saying that to kind of... There's a there's a definite... I, I Look, in New York, absolutely, because mm -hmm. New York is skeptical, but there's still a... a di this guy's famous. Yeah. And so there's... A, and there's also a level of comfort that he has because he's famous and he's accomplished. You know, we we talked about this a little on your podcast, and this is what you were referring to earlier about, you know, sometimes you learn from the similarities and yeah. sometimes you learn from the differences. So I've done public speaking for 20 years. Right. And when I speak to an audience, they all know who I am. Right. And they're all there for me. Sometimes they've paid to see right. me. And so I can basically do anything and I'll make them laugh. And I don't need economy of words. I could tell a story and they'll right. laugh. Um, and then I've always been trying to figure out since starting the comedy, how to take that magic that I feel I do in public speaking and bring it into comedy. Right. But it's very hard because they don't the audience know doesn't know me. Right. So I have to spend some time getting them to know me. And then I don't know how to take those things, those things that make them laugh in public speaking. I don't know how to, I've been doing them so long in public yeah. speaking. I don't know how to trim the fat right, right. on them in comedy. Right, right. And so, but I look at the similarities though. I've been a communicator for more than 10,000 hours, right. but not a comedian for those 10,000 right. hours. Well, it's a different objective. There's a clearly, there's a different objective. So Although the, both are forms of communication. Right, though. but the, the objective, so when you do stand-up, you're, you're looking for laughs every seven to 11 seconds. That's, mm -hmm. when you talk about that belly laugh, that's what that yeah. is. It's bonk, 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 bonk. And even when you're telling a story that's a little more extensive, you're still expected to make them laugh in the cut as you're sure. getting to the point. Like let's take like um I don't know how much you've uh listened to Gary Goldman's stuff. Yeah. But he'll tell like a five minute story, yeah. but still it's every fifteen seconds every 15 there's seconds. a there's every a, 11, a laugh. fifteen seconds. He goes when he does that he that that thing about the uh, abbreviation. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, Oh Dottie. Yeah. You're so like little things like that get you to the point. So you're not so the person is not going, oh, I've been listening to this well, him droll on for the last two minutes for a punchline. This punchline better be great. But he's giving you punchlines. He's paying off. Right. He's paying you off the whole time. And so that's what's in. And I think that is, um, you know, we talk about um, being in, in, in the context of being present, being authentic, having credibility, having empathy to know what the crowd is, what they're thinking. Like you're reading the room. You're you're so far ahead of them. So when I get on stage, I can pretty much look at somebody and go, okay, I get it. So I've had, I've had, um, where I've had killing the whole room, and then there's one woman who is just staring at me, right? And I could feel that, and I'll go, uh. Audience, uh, let me show you what the face of hatred looks like. See this lady? She hates my guts, right? And I'll point her out. And now, now she has the so she has the focus of the whole audience, which is uncomfortable for her. But she was making me uncomfortable because she's so okay. We're both gonna be uncomfortable now. And it also puts the audience on alert that you might call on them. So sure. they're going to stand up a little taller oh, yeah, well, and laugh a little more because yeah, they don't well, want you to call on them. That's a technique that I do. I shoot a hostage when I walk on stage. Hmm. So, like, I don't go, everybody get down. I go, pow! 
out. Everybody get down. And they're looking at the dead body and they're going, I guess we better get down, you know? All right, what's a way to just shoot a hostage randomly? I will. I, I have to go up tonight, so, so. I will make fun of somebody when the first thing I do when I walk on stage. Fearlessly. I like, go, look at this guy. Boom. <laughs> and I will sacrifice him, especially if the audience. Uh, so if you have comics who are younger comics who are not really, you know, killing. Right. The audience, so here's the dynamic. They start to feel confident that they cannot laugh, that they're judging. Oh, let's judge. Let's see. Then bring me another comic. Right, let's, right. What's the next? Next, you know. So when I walk on stage, they think they're going to judge me. I go, pow, I shoot a hostage. And they go, oh, wait, what, what? You, 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 you. We were in charge. No, we're not in charge. No, I think that's a critical micro skill is taking... Not only being likable quickly, yeah. uh, but taking control very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's the way? But but shooting hostage might make you unlikable if the audience might go, "Oh, he just well killed that it's guy." It's got to be well initially. So okay, I give you here's another example. Um, when I was a kid, I was a pretty wild kid. Like I used to fight in the street and stuff. Really, On you five different? <laughs> yeah, really, right? On five different occasions, I fought guys who pulled guns on me. About four or five different occasions, right? Now, here's the dynamic of a guy who pulls a gun on you. Pulls a gun on you, and he goes, aha, now I got you. Now, if you, if he's close enough to me, right, I would step in the range of the gun, step closer to him in the range, and now the gun is out, is on the outside of my body. So in order for him to shoot me, he would have to bring it back, and sh which... But I'm holding the gun out of the range. Now, what is the mentality of him when he feels that he has the drop on me? I step in and then grab the gun. What is his? The aha goes to, oh, shit. The, uh, the advantage that I have, I don't have anymore. So um, that was, but, I, you know, I learned that through martial arts and stuff. You, uh, And so now he's so focused on regaining the advantage that he doesn't even he 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 doesn't understand that he's vulnerable for any attacks punches kicks elbows whatever and pretty much i could you could knock a dude out before he even because he's focused on that gun right so when you shoot a hostage you don't give them an opportunity to go he's not likable everybody's running for the hills and they're going ah everybody run they don't have nobody hates the 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 Columbine kid, <laughs> they're too busy surviving. So at that moment, at that moment, right. right. So so like let's let's take a a, a time when you've gone on stage because I've seen you shoot the hostage, but not in the very beginning. Right. Usually you're like uh, nobody expected to see the bouncer. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, that is a way to go. Here's some little quick jokes that make put you at ease. I'm funny. Yeah. So you could you could trust me. I'm gonna drive. Trust me. I'm funny. And they go, oh, he's, oh, it's, he made me laugh. That okay? Let's, and they'll, and you gain, you gain their trust. But if the audience is rough, then I shoot a hostage. Like, what's an example of what do you mean? Where you shoot a hostage? Um, I, I was in uh, King of Prussia Mall doing the. There's a place called the Vault, and I walked on, and it was a, uh, uh, it was a, the crowd was really rough because the two comics before had a rough time. And I go, look at this guy uh, right here. He looks like he has racist hair. 
right? I don't even know what that means. I go, he has racist hair. I go, sir, you're looking at me like you want to buy me, right? And that just, and they're like, well, I don't I'm not racist. I'm not. And then the audience laughs and they're happy that it's him and not, not them. them. So they'd rather be on my side than on, they're going to, they'll desert him, you know? Um, I had a thing. It's a, the same technique. I remember doing a, I was doing a strip show in um, East New York and Brooklyn. And it was in the projects. And I came out, I, I did the show, and it was a bunch of girls, maybe 40 or 50 girls at this show in the community center. And I come out, and all their boyfriends are outside. And so <laughs> rough I'm crowd. rough. They're all outside. They're mad at me. They don't even know me. And one of the guys goes, Diggle that stripper motherfucker. We should rob him. Now it's 40 of them. I can't fight 40 of them. So I go, why don't you rob me, you punk bitch? And now everybody goes, oh, what you going to do? What are you going to do, James? He just called you a punk bitch. Now, I could have called any one of them a punk bitch, but they don't want to they don't want to deal with me because, oh, this guy, he don't give a fuck. So their mentality is, okay, so I'm going to put it on you, the guy who I spoke to. And he goes, yeah, whatever. I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. And then I go, that's your man? I go to his friends. That's your boy? You hang out with this punk motherfucker? Now the fight is not me against 40 guys. It's me against this guy. And the guys, his friends, they don't really want to try me either because they don't know what I'm capable of, you know? So singling out the person doesn't make the audience not like you. It makes them go their own self-preservation. Right. I don't want to be fucked with. So let him take him, you know? They'll sacrifice him. There's probably a line though. Like for instance, you it's hard. You you wouldn't you wouldn't you probably wouldn't shoot you probably wouldn't shoot to kill a hostage who's a woman or a young girl. I'll do that too. I'll do it depends, but she has to have been so annoying throughout the show that the minute I tell her to shut up, they go, everybody goes, yeah. But like, but like, there's probably a line though somewhere where if you destroy that person, the audience is on that person's side versus Look, your if side. If you hate dogs, mm -hmm. you hate dogs, and somebody's kicking a dog, you may allow that one or two kicks, but if he keeps kicking, you go, all right, look, all right, stop kicking the fucking dog. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. So you, you have to know where that line is. You got to know where the line is. And how do you know that line? It's paying attention, reading the room, listening. I mean, so, but, but you've been doing this for 18 years. Yeah. And you put in your ten thousand hours. Yeah. Uh, how would you like? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put in my eighteen years. I'm already fifty years old. Yeah. Uh, how would you skip the ten thousand hours? And I've been analytical, so I've been trying to. I've been skipping as fast as I can. Well, you gotta. You have to reapply those the, the things that you know about other things. That's what I say about true wisdom. It's reapplying the things that you already know and just trying to figure out um, where. Um, where those things apply. So, like, I I'm telling you a story about me almost getting gang jumped on in East New York that relates to stand up comedy to me shooting a hostage, which is this. I mean, you understand the yeah. connection to that. So, these were things that I learned when I was in my twenties, and I was just able to reapply them when it came to stand up. But it's mm. it's understanding what's relevant. So it's it's what's interesting is like um so since 
interesting when I first met you, I just knew you as a comic, and I and, and I and liked I liked you when we spoke and kind of was good. But then when I found out that you were into the, the Bitcoin and stuff like that, and I started reading some of your stuff and like, and then I so in the last bill will tell you, I I've like immersed myself in the whole culture of it. And I'm nowhere, but right now, right this moment, I could take somebody who is totally against Bitcoin and explain to them why they shouldn't, why they shouldn't be against. Right. It's, so, it's sort of your analogy with me. You know, you've been doing this for a year or two. You right. know more than anyone in the audience. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have, and and being an older guy and starting later, you have these other wisdoms that you can apply. These, these, these little these cosmic and universal laws that you just have to figure out how to to apply it. The other thing I think that helps is having a mentor. Like so the conversation that we're having, you're like the geniuses of yesterday stand on the shoulders of the genius today. So when you're picking my brain, that gets you there. Are you calling yourself a genius? Yeah, I'm pretty much <laughs> a genius. When it comes to this shit, yeah. I believe yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's and it's not so much, I mean, I'm quite sure the people that, but I don't think there's not a lot of comics that would have this conversation. Right. They could even have this conversation about the theory of comedy like I have it. But so, by the way, I agree with you. I think what a lot of beginning comics or beginning of anything miss out on is community with successful yeah. people in their area. I think that actually cuts out like half the 10,000 sure, hours sure. because you get to absorb all of these experiences. But a lot of, I think, comics don't start hanging out with, or, or let's say beginning anything, but I'll use comics as, as the main example because we're talking about that. But people starting out don't usually hang out with more experienced ones till they're in it for like seven, eight, nine, sure. ten years. Yeah, but I, would, I was a dude who, when I started doing comedy, I mean, I was lucky because I... I, I had a car and I had a life before, right? So a lot of comics is, you know, they're couch surfing and they're broke and stuff and they can't even order, can't even have buy a beer. I, I had a whole life before this. And so, uh, like for instance, Judy Gold would come to this club and I would go, you want to ride home? And she would go, yeah, sure. And she'd get in the car and then we would talk and I would pick her brain. And uh, I would, Godfrey and Patrice and, I would ask these questions because, so my system of learning anything is first find a mentor that you trust and let it be somebody who has achieved a certain level of, 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 of um, respect in whatever you're doing and then listen to them. Shut up and do everything that they say. Um, because that will get you because you because first of all, if you respect the person who is the the expert, right, they respect the fact that you're interested in what they do, that you respect what they do and you're interested in it. And so you can always get a mentor just by being polite and being genuinely interested. And it's kind of like you did that in the very beginning when you first you bought books, which is like a virtual mentor right. as you're reading about everybody, then you you watched a lot. And then, you know, like you said, you started, you know, talking to people like Patrice or Judy Gold right. or whoever. Right. And then, you know, there's still something about like having actual stage time to get. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's the, the... um. You have to actually do. You got to do. You can't just buy new Nikes and a headband and expect to be a ball player. You need to get out and work it out. But I think that you can skip a lot of it by it, 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 by having a mentor and listening to what your mentor 
is, and I and I think that works in learning anything. Yeah, I agree. Um, my sister is uh, my older sister. She's a bitch, but um, she but she's really kind of an awful person. And <laughs> but she and she's educated, but she's dumb. Like I don't know if you. So she once she told my nephew, um, well, everybody has to make their own mistakes. And I, that's not true. I mean, yeah, in a real sense, but no, you don't have to make, you don't have to, if everybody had to make their own mistakes, you wouldn't. We'd all think the world was flat to right, start with. Right, you wouldn't. Well, how about this? You don't, nobody invents algebra. You learn algebra from somebody who knows algebra. You don't have to create the mathematical construct of algebra. You just, you get a book and you get a teacher and they teach you algebra. Huh. I think so, I want to steal that concept here. So why would you not, why would that not work in everything else? Hmm. And I'm not saying that we're we're going to, like we're all going to make, we're all fallible. We're all going to make mistakes. But the point is, um, those mistakes are going to come anyway. Why make mistakes that you don't have to make when all you got to do is listen to the mentor and say, when he goes, don't do that. Why not? It's interesting because I guess, it's like what Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Yeah, right. And like when you go on stage or when a com comedian goes on stage, it's like an instant being punched in the face because sure. suddenly the audience right. is there, right. boom, right in your face. But that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. But why not? But but Mike Tyson had trained and he had learned that he had taken shots in the face and he had knew how to hook and punch, built his power and his strength. And so he was ready but he still had to get punched in the face. So the nuance of the mistakes and the nuance is coming anyway. Why would you subject yourself to the things that you don't have to subject yourself to? You could just, you know, it, when it comes to investment and big, I'm going to listen to you. You the guy. You've clearly been proficient at it. So teach me, you know. So teach me, and when and when I can't get you, I talk to Bill. Bill and 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 he'll, you know, I'm how inquisitive am I am about this stuff? Very inquisitive at all hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But it's it's that thing where you wanna you wanna, like I wanna know. Yeah. You know I wanna know. I have and and I wanna be good at it. Cause why wouldn't I not? Well, first, I'll agree with you on comedy and on Bitcoin. Right. Let me switch gears. I want to ask you about relationships because sure. you do podcasts. And then, and Jay, you gave a, the circle. Does anybody have a time limit? Do you have a time limit, Dante? No, I'm good. So, so we'll, a few more minutes. Uh, okay, okay, okay. So uh, how come you're not, you know, you give, a, you, give, you give great advice about relationships. You have a podcast about relationships. Yeah. What are your relationships like? Um, my relationships are great. They're um, they're exactly what the, what I, what I want them to be. And before we were talking, like I was mentioning to you, oh, at some point I'm thinking of, um, you know, I've been married twice. I'm thinking I'd like to get married again. I'm going to get engaged again at some point. And you said, don't. <laughs> well, I mean, it was kind of a joke. I, I don't. But I it was don't, funny, and they had yeah, good reasoning. Right. I don't advocate not doing that. Look, I I, I think that. Um, the nature of the social dynamics between men and women is that my, as a man, my ability to provide is attached to my manhood, right? So, and if you don't believe that, right, uh, look at Kevin Federline, right? So you talk about, people talk about how 
uh, Tiger Woods' wife got $50 million. And we all, as men, we go, ah, she never sunk a putt. She never, right? But Kevin Federline is the one guy that beat the system. He married Britney Spears, and he's basically living off her money. But nobody as a man goes, nobody's walking around with Kevin Federline T-shirts because how we as men define manhood is standing on your own two feet, keeping your word and providing for your family I mean, that's how we define it, whether or not feminists define, that's how we define our manhood. And realistically, no woman is going to deal with a guy who doesn't have those qualities. They could talk about the equality of it and everything else, but... A lot of men are going to be scared listening to this, and a lot of women are going to disagree. Yeah, you can, but here's the thing. No woman is going to the White Castle drive-thru and dating, no professional woman is dating that guy. But if I go through the drive-thru and there's a cutie and she's bl blinking at me, I'm going to take her out. And I don't care whether she's on the fries at because that's I don't need her resources. Mm -hmm. I like her because I, I think she's attractive. So if we define it as men, if we define our manhood as a man, our ability to provide and to protect and to, to, to um, then you have to put your happiness first. Why? Because here's the thing, and women are gonna. I don't really care because it's just. I, I'm We're never. Just talking. I'm never asking a woman relationship advice. Here's why: if you want to know how to hunt a deer, you don't ask the deer. You ask the hunter. Why? Because the hunter knows the the the, the behavior of the deer, and they know how to put a bullet in the deer. Right? The deer is just being the deer. Right? So. Um, when a woman starts to tell me, oh, relationships, I, I want to know how many, I, I want to know how many chicks you dated. How many women have you dated? How many relationships with women have you been? Oh, but I am a woman. Yeah, that's not the same thing. I've, I've dealt with women. I know how women respond and how they act because, look, I was a stripper. Here's the deal. And I don't, I'm not the best looking dude in the world, but the, the, the circumstances. So when I say What's your number? I ask dudes, what's your number? At 32, and I'm not bragging about this. I'm not even really proud of it. At 32 years, I kept a book of how many women I slept with. By the time I was 32, I had slept with 1,400 women. You're, right? like, you're like the Wilt like Chamberlain. Well, Wilt Chamberlain was like 10,000. But, <laughs> and it wasn't because I was the, the best looking dude, but the, the stripper business just, they, women looked at you as an object. Mm. And because they saw you as an object, the agency of what they, the ethical agency of what was the norm, they didn't feel that they had to be that way. So women could be freer with the strippers because they didn't think that you could judge them morally. So if they want you to pee on them, they'd ask you. If they wanted you to um, have sex with them in front of their husband, they would ask you. There was no, you know, there was no agency of that. And so... Being in that position made women more available to you because they didn't feel like you could judge them ethically. Mm. And so I have so many women that I've been with, and there's patterns. So all women, and this piss everybody, but I always piss everybody over here. All women are alike. But let me say this. All men are alike too. That's why you have the, the study of behavioral psychology. Behavioral psychology is the study of patterns in behavior that human beings have. So men act the same way, but women act the same way. And everybody wants to seem as though they're so different, but they're not. I could rattle off 50 questions 
that every guy in here would, would agree with. Everybody in here has jerked off before? Everybody? Anybody not? Okay. Uh, anybody here looked at porn? Everybody here looked at porn before? Yes? Okay. Anybody ever felt f afraid that they might get beat up before? We could rattle off question after question after question that, uh, that's common to human beings, but you could do the same thing with women. The, the same thing, you could, you could find those same patterns, and when you start to look at those patterns, you see how really not that women are less than, but that the fact that as, a, as we are as human beings, there's a commonality that we all have, that, which, is, which makes racism just so uh, ridiculous. Because we're so much alike, and to emphasize the things, the differences, and to hate people for the differences is just absurd. So, um, as we see relationships and, and, and men's manhood is attached to their ability to provide, a man has to put his happiness first because his happiness also encompasses her happiness. So you have a girlfriend, you, you don't feel like a man if your woman is unhappy. Like you feel like a failure, like you failed. I would go even further than that. I've taken girls out on dates to dinners and they didn't enjoy the food and I felt like I failed because I felt like I should have been more perceptive about what she likes. And that's just me, it, personally. Now, a woman's happiness is flighty in the fact that it's based on her emotional state at the time when she's talking. So what makes her happy right now could not make her happy in the next five minutes or the next day. So as a man, you have to, and, and this, is, this is what makes you attractive to women, is your ability to perceive what the things that make her happy before she says it. When you can do that, a, a woman will love you all the time. It's the fact that you know even when you, she hasn't said it. Now, we all go to therapy and people go, well, you know, a man's not a mind reader and da-da-da-da-da, whatever we say. But the bottom line is when you're a guy who's perceptive and you're paying attention and you're present, which is every woman wants a guy who's present. So uh, one of the things I'll tell young dudes all the time, I go, if you're having sex, you should be present. If you're kissing a girl so you could grab a titty and grabbing a titty so you could take her pants off and doing that so you have, you're making a mistake. You have to be in the moment of the kiss. If you're present in that first kiss, just for the sake of that kiss, she can perceive that. She can perceive that you're not thirsty and you're not anxious. And she opens herself because there's a, there's a, almost a, a, a esoteric trust because energy is exchanged you connected in an intimate way so to 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 when women try to say that that's not the issue but then you hear women all the time talk about spark yeah i didn't feel the spark you ever hear women go that I went out with to me, me all the time yeah but <laughs> but what is the spark the spark is that i anticipated the food that you like I anticipated the ambiance. I made sure I knew where the parking was. I made sure the car was gassed up. I made sure. So all of these things, all of this preparation that I took to make this date amazing somehow is spark. It ain't spark. It was planning. 
It was anticipation. It was work on my part. So I'm gonna. Uh, there's two directions we could go with this. One okay. is we can get back to whether I should get engaged or not at some point. But I think I also want to take it back to comedy because you just said two things related to comedy. One is what you repeated earlier, which is being present. Just like you're present with, with the woman, yeah. the guy should be present with the woman. Absolutely. The, the comic should be present with the audience. Right. Because they're gonna recognize that rather than sense some anxiety, which they're gonna their their X-ray vision is gonna see that anxiety and, and reflect it back. Um and then um the next part, the preparation, just because you prepare everything in the date. You still have to have the date and be present and be funny and and the whole thing. Right. That's the same thing. You have to have the spine. You have to have the jokes. Right, right. And then you have to have all these other skills. Well, well, here's. Well, I can answer. Well, actually, I think there's a third way to to look at this. So, um, number one, um, it's preparing for something that you're not. You don't know that you're preparing for and being ready so that you can mobilize the troops mm. wherever that. So it's that, right? Um, but it's also being honest and authentic about what the situation is. Now, if you're going to get married, you know, you have to know, like I I go, um, you know, I, I do this, I do a joke about, you know, engagement and, and how, what a man has to do to, 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 to get a woman. And I go through each step of it and women get angry about it, but it's not, not true. And, um. So one of the things I go is that uh, so I have to I have to give you an engagement ring. I go, does anybody know how much you're supposed to spend on the engagement? What the etiquette is? And somebody will yell out three months salary, which is the answer, right? I mean that was set up by De Beers, but that was the the acceptable amount. Now I go, I um if I make a thousand dollars, first of all, it's not the net, it's not the gross, it's the net. So if I make $1,000 a week, that's $12,000. And then I ask the audience, okay, ladies, what have you ever done worth $12,000? I go, I've never had a $12,000 blowjob. I go, I have had $1,210 blowjob. I prefer the latter. So this is not even a concept that a woman thinks about. She just wants the ring and it feels good and it's emotional and he loves me. Look at the size of the ring. But it's twelve grand, And that's not even you because you you... You know, three months of your gross is different than a thousand dollars. So my point being is, um, this 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 preparation is also knowing what you're getting into. Now, I say if I'm a man, if I'm a man, a credible dude, I know that I'm going to take care of my woman. I know she's going to be safe. I know she's going to be she's going to have the ability to explore and be creative because I want her to be happy and I want her to actualize her own personality and I'm going to help her do that. And if she doesn't want me to help her do that, I'm going to stand back and let it do her own. If she asks me for guidance, I want to be able to know, have enough knowledge to guide her in a direction when she's uncertain, when she feels like she's insecure, I want to be there to be the safety net to, to catch her and to lift her up so that she knows that she can take chances because I've got her back. But let's be honest, all of that is a sacrifice on my part. So I don't mind making the sacrifice, but I'm going to sacrifice. I will make that sacrifice on my terms. So what if she's only going to feel safe with you if you're, you know, within the government confines of a, you know, institutional marriage? Um, then the question, you still got to put your happiness first. Because you're going to take care of her anyway. 
So you're going to make sacrifices. So you better have something that's good for you. So if you do everything, if you, so this, this whole scenario is happy wife, happy life. If happy wife, happy life mean nobody's happy because she's going to be happy when you do what you do for what she wants you to do until she wants you to do something else. When the mood changes and she wants you to do something. So you're, as a guy, you're chasing your tail, trying to chase this happiness that she perceives is her happiness and I'm and and I don't mean it like women don't understand, but I'm saying as their moods change, whatever. Like anybody's they, mood change, right? Yeah, but here's the difference: mm. women tend to be very like if you talk to any woman, she'll have five different sets of friends. She have friends that she'll go to the bar with, friends that she has at work, friends that she goes shopping with. Guys, we don't have that. We're not malleable. We are who we are, and even when we have a group of friends, and the guy who's the dickhead in the friendship, he's the dickhead. And we just kind of accept him. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, Steve, you up? Yeah, right. Good. Uh, so, it, but but he's your boy, and and he's annoying as fuck. Sometimes. Yeah, it's fine. You'll be fine. Go back to your phone. Um, but I love Steve, but Steve is annoying sometimes. He's a lot. So, but you can still, we still can have him part of the crew, and he can still be who he is. Right. And that's okay. Women are very malleable. <laughs> Women are very malleable in that they have, okay, I have a friend that I talk my relationships with. I have a friend that I don't talk my relationships. I have people that I talk. It's, it's a, we're different animals in, in terms of it, socially, we're different animals. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. So my point is you know that being a man and getting married is a sacrifice. So I, I have a joke where I say, oh, this is, this, oh, I love. I want to get married. There's nothing more than I want than to make a um, a, than to make a um, a committed decision on an emotional basis that reduces our love to a legal liability. That's, good. that's what it is. I'm telling you, we got to write a book, comedy nomics, like the freaking <laughs> like the comedy us. of freakonomics. It's a very freakonomics way of evaluating. A uh, 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 relationship, sure. and but with a comedy, a comedic perspective. There's an you could probably do that about relationships, work, yeah, parenting, because sure. everything college. is connected. Everything's good. But if you think about that, you're going, oh, she she wants to be married because she, and then you make this emotional decision. It's a binding commitment, and but somehow it's it becomes a legal liability for you. Because if it doesn't work, it is a legal liability, right? Yeah. You gotta tell, tell me. So my point is: a, this is let's not be unrealistic about what this is financially. Just because I'm in love, because people fall out of love. Now I don't mind taking that plunge, but I'm gonna do it on my terms, so I know what I'm getting into, and I can decide to 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 do whatever I want that if I want to do that but not, let's not let's not be unaware of the sacrifice that I'm making so I have a I have a, I, I dated a girl and I was like she paid for nothing no meals no nothing I pick her up drop her off never once in the course of five years of dating her did she ever put gas in my tank and I didn't want her to but I'm it's still somebody put gas in the tank right and so here's the thing. If I left my drawers, my dirty drawers on the on the kitchen on the bathroom floor, then shut up and pick it up. Like I've been, I'm doing everything. Now you want to nitpick about this? We're not doing that. How is that fair? 
You know, or how is it that you have a mood and I'm willing to help you, but you want to use me as a as an emotional punching bag instead of using me as a crutch to lean on? Because now you're upset and you're in an emotional place and so you want to shit on me because you feel a certain type of way and somehow that's okay. Any, any girl I've ever dated with, she goes, I know that at any given time, you will leave me. And they've said that to me. And I go, you are right. <laughs> I don't go, oh, no. No matter how, treat, how awful you treat me, I'll still be there. No. You won't stay for me at such time that your woman doesn't find you attractive or doesn't love you, she leaves with extreme prejudice. Right. So 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 even outside of that, even outside of that specific conversation, what you're really saying is also about authenticity. True. So when someone says something that you feel inside of you is not quite true, you're not gonna say something just to please. Right. You're gonna say what is the real truth for you. And if if the conversation continues and the relationship continues in the in the given your authenticity, right. I think a lot of people have a hard time just saying, "Hey, I feel uncomfortable about what you just said." It doesn't re- it doesn't really but ring true to me. Why didn't Why don't they do that? Uh, I would say because they're a, they're insecure that the girl or the guy or whatever won't because like them they if they're, they're the true they selves. They don't feel that they don't feel that they have the value to say to be honest. So they distort, they lie because they're not, they don't want to be honest because they don't want to lose the person. Right. So I, th- I think actually the, the key to success in relationships, and I think you agree, is that, and it's because it's related to comedy too, yeah. is that authenticity and okay. that integrity. Yeah. Saying what's like, if, you, if someone says something to me and I don't like it, I will say immediately, I don't know why, but I don't like what you just said. Right. And right. I think well, that's important. I, I but two, I didn't always, I wasn't always like that. Of course not. I, I was always really insecure. Right. And it's only since saying that that I've been happier. And why, why wouldn't you, but I, there's two things that I say to guys when, I, when if, I go, if you feel a tingle in your nuts, chances are you're getting ready to get kicked in the balls. That's getting ready. So that feeling that you have is there for a reason. You, you feel that feeling and you should acknowledge it. That is, that evolutionary, that's what we have. That's how you, hey, I got a feeling... I, it's like your spidey sense. So, you know, I, I had a, um, I, so I do consultations. I do one-on-one consultations through my website, DanteNero.com. You can click on consult and you can buy time with me. Um, and I had a guy who asked me, he has, I have this girl, I really, I like her, been on dates with her. How do you tell somebody that her vagina smells? <laughs> Which he he actually paid for you to tell him the answer to this. Right. Well, first thing I said to him. By is the first, way, you, I hope you're doing comedy about this too. <laughs> like, Do you ever bring this up well, on stage? Because it's fun. I, it's a funny premise. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I, you know, this this was just like two days ago. So I go first of all, um, the reason why you're asking me is because you don't think that you have enough value mm. to tell her. You think that her value is more important than you, so you won't tell her. I go, let me ask you something, and just be if you uh, what if you if your of your your nether regions smelt like hot dog water and sewage, and a girl went to go open your pants up, she's gonna tell you why because she doesn't think you're doing her a favor by having sex with her. She thinks she's doing you the favor. So the value, her value is higher. And so she's going to, hey, what? 
And she might not tell you, but she just may never see you again. So why wouldn't, why would a guy hesitate going, hey, I really like you, but you know, this is, uh, this smells like a garbage dump. Uh, you need to check this out. Now you should check it out. And, and, and why wouldn't you say that? So what are you supposed to just, you, you go down with a clothespin on your nose? Like, what you, why? Why would you subject yourself to that? And if you like them and they like you, we all have flaws. Wouldn't you want somebody to tell you your flaws? Like, so, so it's interesting. Your answer is not a technique. Oh, here's how you tell her. Your answer is like how there's basically guiding this person to look at a bigger picture. Sure. Or to look at things instead of like, okay, here's a QA and a and here's right. the question, here's, here's the, the answer. answer. Right. Look at the notes on the margins and right. let's take a look at what's really happening I want to teach you how to fish. Now, let's talk about the part of what is going on with a woman that her nether regions have an odor and clearly she's sick, right? Because that's what happens with infections and whatever. What is it about, what does it say about her as personality that this is going on and she's not aware of it? By the way, this could happen in either direction, but yes. Right. Yeah. But so, so, so you're talking about somebody who's unaware. You're talking about somebody who's clearly selfish. If she is aware, she's selfish because she she's willing to subject you to this horror, right? <laughs> Without even considering it. Um, and and then you're in a situation where you don't think that you're even worth to to not be with a girl who's smells. Do you know what I'm saying? And there's a cockiness that now if she has a cockiness about this. It's like really you cocky. Like you, you better than me, but you smell like. So, so now, have we have we heard back from 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 the guy who called you? Not yet. It was just this was like yesterday, day before yesterday. So when when do you, when do you hear back from him? You have I, to. I don't know. It'll, it'll, you have to give me a call. I'll, I'll, what, call what like, I'll call you. I'll call you. know. But I mean, here's well, here's an example. If you got a kid and he doesn't make his bed, he probably is not going to pay his American Express bill. It's it's all relative. Hmm. It's it's about responsibility. You make your bed, you do your homework, and then when you grow up to be a, a grown man, you pay your bills on time and you pay your credit card bills. If you don't do those things, you don't make your bed and you don't clean your room and you don't do your homework, you probably are not. You're probably gonna be. A, that's a kid who at eight years old you already know he's gonna be in debt. Why? Because he doesn't understand that there are consequences to his actions and that responsibility and integrity is important. That's a really good point. Um, and I do actually now want to bring this back to comedy <laughs> in order in order to uh, we'll, we'll we'll get into the final stage of this. But so I'm just going to completely segue without any sure sure. Where do you want to go next in comedy? Um, I I I like to be uh, I like to be better known. Like I'd like to do bigger things. I want to do an hour. Um, I want to do an hour with with Netflix or some. I want to put out an hour and. Have that go. I mean, I've been working on this craft for so long. Um, I think I'm more than ready for people to see the development of where I'm at. And I don't really think that, I, I think that I have this really unique point of view. Have, have you shot an hour? Not yet, no. No. Why don't we shoot you an hour of you downstairs and just film it? Let's and then it. you can send it into Netflix. Let's do it. You can Let's shoot it. it in like 4K and uh, three yeah, cameras. Yeah. I, what does yeah. Netflix require? I'm not sure. I, I, I can find out though. I could definitely find out when you do it. Um, so that's industry-wise. Um, you know, I want to do more acting and stuff, bigger parts. But um, artistically, 
I'm already, you know, I'm already pushing myself artistically. You know, like that's something I've always done. I'm always trying to push and and go deeper and and talk, be honest, authentic honesty. And I think, you know, again, goes back to integrity, authenticity, and empathy. If you keep those three things in place, I think you can't not be successful. And I think even it it cleanses all the evil around. Like it, you, if you if you operate on a level of integrity and you don't never you never compromise that, and people can't they just don't they can't deal with you in other, any other way because you're just not going to tolerate it. I think that's really true. And again, I think that's a real important meta skill for learning anything. Yeah, you know, to figure out what your point of view is. And to learn the skills around that point of view. Sure, sure. Um, with that, I'm gonna close off the podcast. But Dante, how do people find you? Particularly if I if I want to call up and get some consult consultation on relationships. Okay, so let me just say first, the the podcast is the Beige Phillips Show presents Man School, hosted by Dante Nero. Um, my website is DanteNero.com. You just click on consult and it's right there. You can book everything right online. I get an email telling me that you want a phone call at a certain amount of time. I call you up and we talk and you tell me what's wrong and I tell you what to do. So it's pretty easy. The problem is I, I find that men don't usually consult as often as possible because men, like again, this is men's manhood is 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 a, is your ability to provide and so guys don't ask for directions mm. and they only ask for directions when they're in the desert out of gas so usually i get the call when the relationship is in shambles and then they're looking to fix it after it's all screwed up but you can just click on consult and you can follow me on instagram as dante nero comedian everything else is dante nero if you google and then me, they find your like uh where you're gonna appear on comedy or yeah that's on my on my website as well and uh, the podcast of course very funny and uh, yeah, thank you and you're on it so I, yeah i'm yeah. on it see you see you just a few yeah, weeks we ago good, we had a really good time yeah, it's it fun was, yeah yeah it's awesome man all right well thanks dante and oh you know i want to at some point you'll come on again because i want you to analyze one of my sets that's yeah, what, yeah. that was our original plan but yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we brought you in today yeah so. that's that's awesome I mean, I, and then when I'm, I'm i mean i appreciate you as a friend and i and i've learned so much about finances and stuff from you and and i, you I know, appreciate that you know you have a an open invitation to call me and you know as does bill i told bill not you, Steve. <laughs> uh, thanks so I, much. I love Steve, though. Let me just say it. <laughs> you got more wisdom than all of us. So. Probably true. Uh, all right. Thanks again, Dante. Thanks for having me, bro. Appreciate it. Next time on The James Altucher Show. I always wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. I thought this is what I was born to do, you know. You felt that. How yeah. did you feel that? I, because like my whole body, my whole spirit changes when I'm in the kitchen or when I'm at the farmer's market. Do you think it's possible to get started in a field if you're a little too old and you can't have the time to learn the ABCs of your craft? I really think it is important to learn the basics really well. But I think in these days, imagination is even more important. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. 
And it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and that it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. Also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.